Welcome to episode number 229 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Ryan, and with me today are Noah, Michael, and Jill. And on this episode of Destination Linux, we're headed back to Jill's museum for another treasure hunt. And this time, I've asked her to pick something from the 80s, which you'll understand later. And I'm very <laughs> excited to see what you have to unveil to us, Jill. Then we take a look at the new refreshed Firefox, and then we also have some discussion on how everyone is leveraging Linux inside their operating system and what this is going to mean for Linux in the future. Plus, tips, tricks, software picks, all of this coming up right now on Destination Linux. In our community feedback this week, Roger writes us to say, hey, DLN gang. In episode 227, Ryan talked about building a computer and getting his son involved, and it made me reminiscent about building my first computer. My journey in electronics, telecommunications, computers, and networking started when I discovered the Amateur Radio Relay League handbook in the local library early in the 1970s. My interest in radio led to a career in the United States Air Force working on line of sight and over-the-horizon radio systems. While I was stationed in Japan in the early 1980s, I went to Akihabara, I probably Akihabara. There we go. Uh, to <laughs> to purchase the parts to build a 6502 based computer, which is a, I soldered to the dual inline chips on a motherboard and put it in a case attached to keyboard and monitor. And I agree with Ryan about the rush of successfully yeah. booting the computer that took me five evenings and part of a Saturday to assemble. Fast forward to my my son's first attempt to build a computer to see the same sense of accomplishment was a golden moment. Keep up the good, the good work talking about the past and future of open source so more people can learn about what it is available to them to learn. Best regards, Roger. I mean, I, I love this email for so many reasons, but I, I have to say it, doing the Hardware Addicts podcast, it's also my favorite part of the podcast is getting people writing in saying, hey, we listened to you guys. You got me into hardware and I built my first computer. And getting to that post screen is the most exciting thing. Uh, even to this day, when I'm building a new machine, I used to build them every single day in my dad's shop. And now, obviously, it's more sparse. I build them when I finally convince my wife, for some reason, I need a 15th computer. But <laughs> or, or, or I'm, I'm working on somebody else's, but it's still the same feeling to me, you know, hitting that um, power button and watching that post screen hit and knowing that I understand how all these things work and plug them in. It's also fascinating because you get to a certain point where I've had other people want me to build a PC for them and they're watching you plug this stuff in and I'm trying to explain it. And to them, it's like magic that you know where this, <laughs> the RAM sticks go, or you know where the CPU, yeah. like they, to me, it's like, obviously this is where it goes, but to them, it, their mind's blown. And it's the same way I feel when I look at a mechanic working on a car. I'm like, how do you know where the screws go back into this thing? Like <laughs> uh, I have that same feeling. And I think at the end of the day, what this tells you is that when you take the time to actually understand how something works and are able to put it back together, fix it, repair it, or build it for the first time, it's an incredible experience that I encourage everybody, if you've never built your own machine, do so. It's going to be tough and challenging. And you can see here that in some cases, it took them several days or a week to get it done. But when it's done and you get it working right, it's something you'll remember forever. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I when I first started doing computer stuff, I was always in the software side, not the hardware side. And thanks to hardware addicts, I'm getting more and more into the hardware. And <laughs> I actually have something 
planned that I'm going to be letting them know in a future episode that Ryan is not at all aware of that I'm be doing some more hardware stuff. And uh, whoa, yeah, right. Look at you. Like I, I'm excited. I've I've done a computer. I've built my own computer before, and it does have that experience of like, well, while I was doing it, I was very frustrated and annoyed. And like, well, how how much heat sink, thermal paste, whatever that I'm supposed to put on. Like it's a piece size. No, you got to put it on the line. Like whatever. <laughs> Ryan, tell me what to do. But once it, it was matter. all done, <laughs> it, it was great and it worked and I had it running and everything. And it was, it was, a, it was an awesome, uh, the, the phrase of like golden moment is totally accurate. I, I completely agree with that. And I'm excited to do more now that, uh, you know, coming soon to a podcast near you. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Yeah, so I've been uh, building computers. Uh, my very first one I built was a 286. So nice. I, you know, I had been taking apart computers before then, and uh, uh, was a little upsetting to my parents that <laughs> they understand it. it was a learning experience. <laughs> so I always got them put back together. So you know, I had taken apart my Apple II and Commodore 64, and then it was time I, I, you know, start building one for myself. Computers are very expensive to buy. And that was more cost effective. And I wanted to learn how how it worked. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's fair to say, too, like there's a lot of times my kids will have a toy, electronic toy of some sort, and it breaks. And I take stuff apart and I try to fix yeah. it. Sometimes I get it working. And that's a really great moment. Sometimes I make it worse and it goes in the garbage. <laughs> so I mean, it's it's all to me, though, it was all about it's all about learning. Like when I'm taking that apart, a remote control car or something that's not working, I'm talking about the parts I can't identify to my kids and I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with it. It's still a learning experience, even if it doesn't work sometimes. Of course, when it does, it's much more fun. So as usual, I'm kind of the odd <laughs> man out here. Uh, I I used to build a lot of machines, but over time, what ended up happening was, I, I, quite frankly, PC manufacturers have gotten good enough at putting together production machines that aren't so proprietary that you could still add stuff to. If you go buy, you know, like Adele Precision, you can still put whatever graphics card you want in. You can still swap out most of the components and stuff like that. And then over time, I've I've slowly started to move away from desktops as Thunderbolt was introduced into my life. And I found that I can have, you know, like behind me, you can kind of see there's a Thunderbolt workstation, those two monitors and that, that sit-stand uplift desk. There's no PC attached to it. It's just an empty dock with a Thunderbolt cable sticking out. And so ordinarily I take my personal ThinkPad and I plug it into it and then I have my personal computer and I use it and do whatever I'm going to do. And then when I'm done, when I go to work on Monday, I just disconnect that computer, put it back into its case, grab my work laptop, plug it to the exact same Thunderbolt connection. And Bob's your uncle, my <laughs> 27 inch 4k monitors come to life with my work setup. And you know, the audio comes out of the speakers then and my, my keyboard and my trackball and all the things that I was used to using, whereas just 24 hours ago, I was using it as, as a personal machine. Now it becomes my work machine. There's no cross contamination. I don't have to worry about all any of my personal files or any of my personal banking records, any of that stuff ever got onto my work computer, vice versa. If there's some mm -hmm. sort of stupid software that I have to have on my computer, I have to run uh, to do a portion of my job. I don't have to worry about that intruding on my personal life or running on my personal network, any of those kinds of things that there's this massive separation. And then I have the opportunity to duplicate that setup, you know, anywhere. So I've got one here, I've got one at my office, I've got one that's mobile that comes with me that I can assemble anywhere. And, and so over time, I've kind of gotten away from building computers and just going to buying production computers and plugging them in. And, and part of my rationale for that is every three to five years, I'm, I'm looking to upgrade my machine anyway. And, and so today, laptops can do 
the va- what most people need to get done, the vast majority of it can probably be done on a laptop. So I'd invite you to, to give that a shot. If you have a different way, if you build your computer or if you're using a laptop or if you have something we didn't think about, we want to know about it. And you can share your feedback with us. We love hearing from you. We have listeners from all around the world. And so we want you to write in. Now, there's a specific way that you have to do it. We only take feedback if you do it this way. You have to go find yourself a stool and you have to find yourself an official DLN mug. Now you can order those and then you're going to fill it with coffee or bubbly or water or whatever your drink of choice is. You sit down and you send an email to comments at destinationlinux.org. Now, if you don't do the prerequisites, the email, it just goes into the trash file 13. We don't even listen to it. But if you do all those things that it makes it into the show and you join the community, you participate in the discussion and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can also participate and stay connected to the community by going to dlnform.com. Now, later on this week, one of my favorite conferences, probably actually my favorite conference of the whole year is coming up. It is Southeast Linux Fest. And yeah. I'm excited to talk about Woo-hoo. what's going to happen this year. So obviously due to the ongoing pandemic and the restrictions that are in place in North Carolina, uh, we're not going to be able to hold self in person. But never fear, we as nerds have mastered the opportunity of doing things online. We were doing remote working and working from home and communicating from home and building communities before, from home way before it was cool and the, and, and the accepted way to do things. So this is really just kind of like rehearsal for us. It's going to be another virtual event and we want you to participate. We want you to join us in that virtual event. And so it's going to be happening. We're going to have talks Friday uh, and Saturday uh, with, uh, with some, with, uh, with Saturday night being a, 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 a geek hangout and we're going to be streaming uh, some retro tech and trying to get Linux to run on some really old machines and all of that's going to be streamed nice. participate with that awesome try to get software to run and, and those kinds of things so it's going to happen this week uh, Friday Friday June 11th 12th and uh, and we have speakers for Friday and Saturday we're not exactly sure about Sunday yet um, but continue to go to southeastlinuxfest.org for more details you can sign up there to receive emails right to your inbox or you can join us in our matrix service you can go to matrix.linuxdelta.com and you can sign up uh, for an account there and join us and participate either as a volunteer if you'd like to help us coordinate the event or if you'd just like to attend you can do it from the safety and security and comfort of your own home you don't even have to wear pants that's the, that's, that's a beautiful thing. You, you mean, sold you me on webcam. that. Yeah, you yeah. sold me. Yeah. You have a webcam as long. Now, it's important. <laughs> waist up only, right? You want to keep the camera. Make sure to check all that and make sure, you know, when you stand up, you do the slide before you stand. But if you got that down, if you're doing that for work anyway, same thing. <laughs> Just wear a nice shirt uh, and and then and waist up only. That's all that matters. And, if, and by the way, if you have a hotel reservation, if you made a ho- reservation said, I wanted to come and attend Southeast Linux Fest in person, um, you have the opportunity to cancel that reservation or you have the opportunity to just roll that to the next year because you better believe in 2022, we're going to be back in Yeah. <laughs> hey, this episode of Destination Linux, it's brought to you by DigitalOcean and their new app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform is a service for uh, building modern cloud native apps. So the short story is this, right? You're a developer. You've written some cool code. You want to push it into production. Problem. You don't have a server to run it on. You don't have the infrastructure. Now, you could go through the process of going to Dell, purchasing a server, negotiating with the data center, driving to the data center, putting the putting the server in the data center, then spinning it up and testing it in the data center, then going outside the data center and making sure that everything works. And when it doesn't work, drive back to the data center and then go fix it. And then maintain all of that. And every time the server breaks, or actually you better put a hard drive schedule in there too, because those are, you know, they, they die. So, you know, every three to five years, I'd say you better be cycling drives. Also, by the way, you better have some on-site help at the data center just in case something breaks and you're not there to fix it. Uh, and then if you do all of that, 
then you can SSH into a VM. And I would virtualize if I were you and spin up a, a, a VM and then compile your code and then you could run it. So, you know, a week to a month, somewhere in there, you could probably get all that to run. Or you could shorten that up to about five minutes by going to do.co slash DLN and spinning up a digital ocean droplet there. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to tie it to your GitLab or GitHub repository of your code. And it's just going to magically transform that code into a production service. What does all that mean? Well, it means that you can secure your apps automatically because DigitalOcean is going to create, manage, and renew all of your SSL certificates. They're going to pre prevent other people from attacking your server servers with things like DDoS attacks. And their app platform uses open cloud native standards, which means that it automatically analyzes your code, creates the containers, and runs them in their Kubernetes clusters. Now, it gets even better because ordinarily you'd have to pay for all of that. But because you're listening to the show, because you're a member of the Destination Linux community and listen to the Destination Linux podcast, you can get started for free. In fact, it's better than for free because they're going to give you money to get this started. You go to do.co slash DLN. That's it. You go to a website, do.co slash DLN and get a $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. And of course, a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. All right. So the time you've been waiting for, Jill's treasure hunt is finally back. I asked Jill in honor of the email we received earlier to find something around the 1980s or so from Jill's museum to bring to us to show off. So Jill, you've put a cover over it. You know I'm <laughs> drooling to find out what it is that you brought us today. So tell us a little bit about your treasure hunt this week. Okay, I'm going to do a little introduction and then we're going to show a, have a, a video of you're it. You're going to tease us. I yes, see how you're I'm teasing like you. It. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So yes, as Ryan said, uh, since we have been talking about how rewarding and exciting it is to build your own computer, and because I was inspired by Roger's feedback, I decided to show you one of the computers that I had built in the 1980s for today's treasure hunt. <laughs> wow, nice. that's awesome. <laughs> and the first computer I actually built was a 286, as I had said earlier, when I was in middle school in the early 80s. And my, I was fortunate because my brother had a computer business and gave me the parts to build one in exchange for doing chores for him and cleaning his room. <laughs> That's not a bad trade, though. That's yeah, not a terrible it was, trade. It yeah. was a good, good trade. And I have a wonderful brother. <laughs> so and I was so very grateful uh, because, as everyone knows, computer parts in those days were a pretty penny. And I was just a kid and I didn't have a lot of money to build one. <laughs> right. So I was very fortunate. And, you know, like I said earlier, I had taken apart several of our family computers in the past, the Apple II and later the C64, much to my parents' chagrin, <laughs> but I put them back together again and got them working. So they were proud, proud of me. And, you know, then it was time for me to build my own finally. <laughs> nice. That's so awesome. So a 286, is this the 8286 from Intel? Then back no, then? this is what I'm going to show you today is not the 286. And there's a reason for that. So that I will, okay. I will tell you right. in a minute. I'll wait. It's a generation, excited. a bit generation later. Okay. So this computer was built by Jill in the 80s and she kept it. Why didn't I think of doing this kind of stuff when I was a kid? <laughs> right? I never I kept mean, anything. You I know? have the exact same thoughts. Like uh, every time I we talk, we talk to Jill when we do the treasure hunt, I always think like I had so much good stuff and I don't know where it is now. Kept it all. I just, yeah. I love that. Right. You could see this very small form factor. I'm kidding. All right. I see the floppy disk. 
we've got the nice glossy front to the metal frame here and in the back look at them port options still more ports than a mac <laughs> very very unusual to find a black case in the 80s i was yeah. gonna say everything was beige <laughs> was everything back there actually beige or did it start like white and then over time <laughs> like you know i think you're right i think you're right no it faded over time and i could see is that a 56k modem in there is that is that what i'm seeing well back then maybe not 56 yeah actually i I had I had a modem in here at one point and took it out okay. and put Ethernet in. <laughs> okay, gotcha. I distinctly Very remember nice. I distinctly remember the first laptop I had with two PCMCA slots and being like, wow, now I can gang two sixty-four modems together, sixty-four K modems together. Yeah, shotgun. 128. Yeah. It was one of the few kids at my high school that had two phone lines at his house because my dad had a business. So I was like, ha, take over the main house line and the business line. Now I get 128. You were a real hacker. Yeah. All right, come tell us about this. Okay. <laughs> All right, so Jill, tell us about this specific build. Why is this one special to you? What kind of 286 is inside this? This is actually the force first 486 I built. But the case originally had my first i386 I built, which was then upgraded to an i486. Gotcha. And there is a reason for that, which I'm going to I'm going to uh, tell you why I I picked this particular one. Um, there actually have been at least four different builds in this case. The case this case has actually has battle scars and has withstood the test of time. If you noticed, um, you'll you, the back ports actually. Ooh, I can rotate it here. <laughs> so, nice, nice, <laughs> and uh, the back ports. The uh, AT connector, I had to modify the case to get different motherboards in because in those days, there, the, the standards were still fluctuating. So you wanted, when you wanted to go from an I386 to I486, there were different size motherboards. <laughs> so. not, not only that, did you have to, so did you have to pre-drill because there's the little, they still come with a lot of cases today, but of course there's the little tab stands for your motherboard, right? That yeah. you screw in. And then back then we used to also put a little filter over top of that to, yes. yeah, the, the to little red it. to ground it, the little red yeah. tabs. Of course, now they're built in to motherboards, but exactly. holding those little red tabs over the standoff and then trying to get a screw in without the little red thing falling out was quite an undertaking back in the day. We used to actually super glue them mm, right to yes. the, the standoff so that, that they wouldn't fall <laughs> off when you're trying to lower the motherboard in. Yeah. Yeah. And and one thing uh, to your point, uh, Ryan, uh, I don't like using the plastic standoffs that they give you today. Yes. <laughs> I, I use metal ones. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's a, a more stable way to ground your motherboard. But anyways, as you can tell, this case is a small form factor mid tower, which was actually not not as common then. It, it, and it's in a beautiful glossy black exterior, not the usual beige color of the time. Yeah, that's actually very shocking because when you first <laughs> yeah. thought it was like, is it that's from the 80s? Really? Yes. Like, like that's actually looks relatively <laughs> modern. Case? It doesn't have a name on it. It was a no generic kidding. case that my okay. brother had found from someone. And he's like, oh, my sister would love this because it was unique. <laughs> wow. So, and here's what's also really cool about it. The LEDs for this PC um, speed are 
are actually big and modern and hidden behind the translucent black panel in the front. Oh right my here. gosh, they were it's way ahead of their time. Beautiful. I have a pic of it that Michael can edit in in the post show of it turned on. And then you can see the, the numbers, although the speed indicated on the computer is not the actual speed of the computer currently. <laughs> what is the speed it displays out of curiosity? 33? No, 90. Uh, 90. Okay. <laughs> 99. You definitely yeah, had to 90. push the turbo button for that. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of well, which, the turbo is there button, a turbo button? <laughs> there is a turbo button. Of course, back but, then you had turbo, yeah. <laughs> but actually, turbo, believe it or not, it was. I'm glad you uh, noticed that, <laughs> Ryan, or was thinking about it, because turbo actually does the opposite on the computers. It actually underclocks the processor, not overclocks it. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> yes. <laughs> My brain is it, broken now. What? It was very, very confusing, <laughs> but they made that yeah. for compatibility with older software. Why, why, did they they, call it it, turbo? why did they call it Turbo? It should have been D-Clock yeah. <laughs> or something so like that. I'm confused by that. I remember when I, was, when I had a computer back then, I would, I would hit the Turbo button because it's like, yeah, it's got to be good because it's Turbo. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> in later years with Pentiums, there actually were was a difference because right. when you hit the turbo button it would i was gonna uh, say that wasn't um, always the case yeah correct it, it yeah. used to actually flip <laughs> even the digital screen to from 33 to 66 or whatever the turbo yeah. was later on so they yeah. they in the pentium years they fixed the terminology and so they made it actually an overclock <laughs> so and and this one you know all the the 46s i built after this one uh, are actually in full height Beige, beige cases, which you're used to seeing, and you know, with many CD-ROMs, DVD-R drives, and and my other ones are are faster, 486 DX66 megahertz. This one's a 33, and um, I also have another mid tower as well. So I have three 486 computers, which leads me to you know, this was originally my first i386, and the reason. I, I wanted to show this one and not one of my oldest builds is that it, it, it is running Linux and the 32-bit i386 microprocessor was the first CPU that the Linux kernel, kernel could officially run on. Oh, and Linus awesome. Torvalds developed Linux on his i386. So I figured I'd show my first originally i386 build. Nice. And because wow. some of the parts in here are from the original 386 <laughs> are now in the awesome. 486. And I, you know, I played with so many Linux distros on the computer, Slackware, Debian, Red Hat, and lots of floppy disk, in disk installs and live CDs and floppy live disks. So, <laughs> so it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been through a lot and it was, um, I used to, you know, before Linux, I had, you know, Windows 3.1 on it with DOS 6.22 later on in the early 90s. And uh, it, originally I had, when it was a 386, I had MS-DOS 3.31 installed on it in 1987. So, so an interesting <laughs> question from one of our patrons is how many fans are in that case? Oh, gosh. Yeah, compared to today, it's like... <laughs> Very few, actually. So you have the one in the power supply and the one on the processor. And then I have one under my uh, SCSI hard drive in here. Because nice. I always, I had to have SCSI to do, to do 
computer animation and motion graphics. It's so. a shame the case manufacturer <laughs> didn't prominently put their name on it because I'd be fascinated who was making the black cases back then. But I have to ask, you mentioned that the case itself had battle scars because you had to mod it to fit in other motherboards and things. But what about your hands? Did they have battle scars? Because back then oh, they yes. didn't roll the metal and yes. we would cut ourselves constantly. I've bled on a many cases over my Same life. Same here. Yes. See, yeah. And as Ryan is saying, most cases today have smooth edges. So you won't cut yourself while building. Because <laughs> yeah, that was why I waited. Yeah. Yeah. That's why you <laughs> waited. And also, you know, today the cables are slotted and you, you can't accidentally install the power cable in the wrong direction and fry your motherboard like I could on this one. Yeah. I never had an accident like that because I knew so much money was on, at, at stake and I was very careful, very meticulous and very obsessive about building my computer to make sure that it would boot and that everything was perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I would now, we used to do a trick it. where we would short the motherboard to clear the BIOS password. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember you that? could yes. do a jumper. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. And yeah. And you verily ha very rarely have a need to flip dip switches or change jumpers now. Yep. You know, I, I me memorize them anyways. And, and partly because I do only see out of one eye, I actually, by feel, you know, was able able to install the the power supply, you know, hard drive reset and reset the computer because uh, you had JP6, JP7, JP8. And I had actually memorized those because I could never see in the case at oh that. Oh my goodness. And so I had to use my fingers. And I remember my brother was really impressed that I was just doing it by feel. I bet he was. To this, day, <laughs> to this day, that's the worst part of building a computer is connecting yes. the jumper cables. I can't stand trying to... Yeah find out where to finagle that little cable that does the power <laughs> LED. Some, some, of them, like some of them are getting easier. Like on Asus, they give you a little block. The and adapter. Yes. Yeah. And they're, all, they're all labeled on the little block. So you yeah, put the power you LED, you know better. which one's the positive and the negative because you can see it right on there. And then once they're all connected, then you put the whole block in and it only fits one way because it's keyed. That should yeah. be standard though, Noah. I have seen that a couple times and I'm so glad after what? 60 years, we're finally figuring out a way to simplify the jumper thing because it guess, is the worst. You know, really, if we're being honest with ourselves, we could probably see a point where we get to an area where, oh, I don't know, we could just standardize that connector. Yeah. Oh, wow. that's crazy talk. The computer built in the last 30 years has a hard drive and, <laughs> and a power button yeah. and a reset. But yeah, it's just you know. so well, true. A, a couple of things on that, though. Interesting, because, Noah, you talked about the fact that, you know, you use laptops now. You don't need desktop. Obviously, you're not gaming. You're not doing heavy rendering and the things that what a are you laptop talking about? Handle. I still play Counter-Strike. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what I think is interesting <laughs> is that, you know, even with the laptop world, you, you can definitely build your own, but people like Framework and stuff, this new thing that they're coming out with where they're making the laptops modular so that you can pull out all the components, including the processor and replace it with a mm -hmm. new processor, new upgraded mainboard, all of that stuff brings that back. And because you had the knowledge at one point of building it, to you, that would be like, yeah, take the CPU and mainboard out and then I stick this new module in and boom, I've got a new laptop. It's no problem. I, I still see that people should, I think, do what Jill did, what you did, what I did, and and take the time to build one if you never have, because yeah, you can still repair exactly. and fix and upgrade a laptop to a degree. Obviously, yeah. not as much as the main PC, but you know, to a degree. Yeah, and it is. It's just so rewarding. In fact, you know, I have been teaching um, animation for years, three D animation and two D, and actually, my one of my very first classes, I have my students learn the components of the computer. 
because yeah. I want them to understand how the software is working with the hardware. It's very important. Yeah. I've taken it to a new level here. I wanted to show this to you, Jill. So I've started oh. collecting silicone wafers. Oh, and those are wonderful. This is a MIPS R3010 from 1988, a RISC processor. Nice. And you can see each of the individual dies there. And yes. we did a whole segment on hardware addicts where we kind of went into how these are manufactured. And it was yes. so fascinating to me that I had to start buying them and staring at them and just <laughs> appreciating what goes into these things we use every day, open up a browser and check our email and don't think twice about how fascinating and awesome they are. So Yeah. Oh, I was, I'm so happy you showed that because I have several. I have actually quite a collection. Of course um, you do, Jill. And I would like you to send them to me because now I'm yeah. collecting and you have too much. So one of, just, well, one of my mo most treasured is my more modern one. Uh, it's a, a Pentium Pro, one of the very first Pentium <laughs> Pros. And I got it at the Intel Museum in That's Silicon amazing. Valley. That's and really hard to get a hold of more modern ones because these yeah. are very secretive. It's very, yes. they don't want to hand <laughs> these wafers out. So if you're trying to get anything current, it's very difficult. So if anyone in our audience wants to sell one to me, let me know. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. And they go for quite a bit of money on eBay too. Because yeah, <laughs> I look, cheap. I look, but yeah. So yeah, this computer, it has actually what was huge for those days, 16 megs of RAM. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Ooh. We were flying. I needed that for animation. And like I said, I needed the DX because a lot of my software I used required the math coprocessor. So even my 386 was a, a DX as well. And uh, it, this also has a Sang Labs ET6000 PCI video card. Sweet. <laughs> you could do some serious rendering on that. Yes. Yeah, that was a really good card. And um, later I got, you know, Matrox uh, cards because they, they became the king for rendering. And uh, it has two IDE hard drives. And actually both the hard drives are starting to have the click of death. They're starting oh, to have no. issues. They are pretty old, but not to fear. My SCSI hard drive in here is just fine. The SCSI drives last forever. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have actually the CD-ROM and SCSI, and then I have a, a SCSI uh, hard drive in there nice. uh, with uh, controlled by an, a classic Adaptech SCSI controller card. <laughs> Very cool. Absolutely amazing, Jill. Thank you so much for taking us into your yeah. museum, taking us back to the Yay. 80s. Jill, one of <laughs> yes. Jill's first builds. Yes. We appreciate it very much. That's awesome. It seems that everyone wants to leverage the growing popularity of Linux in their own operating system, in a different system. So, for example, you know, we've had stories recently with Microsoft doubling down on WSL, releasing WSL-G, which has the ability to run Linux applications inside of WSL. Also, uh, Chrome OS's Crostini is now coming out of beta, which has the ability to run uh, Linux apps on Chrome OS and that sort of stuff. And I think it's just interesting overall of like what's happening with all these different OSs now trying to make themselves more appealing by adding Linux apps. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts on this? To me, it kind of feels like a a jab at Linux, but maybe I'm just looking at it in a... You're looking at it, the extend, extinguish kind of concept yeah, that now all bit. these OSs are bringing Linux inside of them. And what is this going to mean for Linux overall? I mean, I think it's really interesting that Microsoft, I remember when WSL was kind of first announced, they're like, well, it's just a terminal and that kind of stuff. But now we're seeing it can graphically launch apps. They're supporting audio microphone devices, which means the graphical apps can also record and play audio. 
Um, it can be used to run Linux AI now. So essentially, you're in your Windows machine and you've got WSL. You can do most of the things. They're making it so you can do most of the things that you do with Linux inside of Windows. And then yeah. Chrome OS is doubling down as well, right? They're building in all of these new features into what used to be called Christini. Is it not called Christini anymore? I don't know. I don't follow it. But it used to be called that um, from them. But essentially, they've taken out of beta, which is great for Google because that means they're not going to kill it this week. Um, so they're they're kind of doubling <laughs> down on it. They didn't kill this feature. It lets you run Android <laughs> apps, let you run Linux apps, uh, all in this environment. Uh, I was reading the news this week that there's 50 new Chromebooks set to be released this year. So if you think Google was going to back off on kind of bringing the Chromebook into the mainstream, they're certainly not. As apps move more onto the web, this is very interesting. And who controls the web? Of course, Linux powers that uh, by a long shot. So yeah, I, I want to get your opinion, Noah, actually on this, because part of me is with Michael. I feel like in some ways they're utilizing Linux as a tool. In other ways, I feel like, hey, more people are going to be exposed to open source. What are your thoughts? So I, I think what's interesting is you you are watching that the technical community has moved towards a direction of open source and businesses and governments and people have started to learn to trust open source. I can't count the number of times 10 years ago it, when I was walking around and I would say the term open source or I would say Linux and people would look at me like I had six eyes and then I would go and explain. They would go, uh ah, that kind of makes sense. I guess I kind of understand. These days I have people, the least technical people I've ever met in my entire life, right? Everybody ha has moved on, on onto that bandwagon. And so as Google and Apple and Microsoft and all of these massive tech giants have seen that happen, what is their response? Well, they know that they need to market to those people and they need to tell them why they're able to serve that need better than their competition. And so Apple has really dug into the privacy, not so much the open source, but hey, we're going to keep your stuff private. Google I'll get to Google. Microsoft <laughs> has has said, hey, we're good. We, we love open source. We love open source. We love Linux. You want Linux and open source? No problem. We got that in Windows. We'll, we'll deliver it to you all day long. Well, what about these apps? Oh, we got graphic apps. Those are coming too. Uh, and, and then you've got Google and they're kind of a strange beast because Google, they don't really care about privacy and they, they sort of make like a half, half attempt to kind of, yeah, there's some privacy features coming in Android 11. See, now we can you can request that we don't collect some of these stuff. It's all on by default, but you can request that we don't turn, we don't collect some of this stuff, right? And, and at the same time, they all of these companies, Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, every all of these companies are benefiting from the hard work and the community efforts that have been done because they're all using open source technology underneath. All of their servers, everything that Azure is running, vast majority of it is running on top of Linux servers. The development efforts that are happening as they as they push out, as they, as they go to developers and say, where do you want your project and how do you want your project to run? Those things are running on Linux. And so Microsoft is having to, to bend over backwards to accommodate those developers because if they're going to write a program, nobody is writing a software thing that they're putting onto a CD and mailing out into a box and people then receive and put it into their computer and install it and run it on their computer. It's just not the way things work anymore. These days, if you're writing a piece of software, you're running it on a centralized server, and it's probably, at, at, at its most basic premise, probably running something like Nginx, and then there's a database engine behind it, and all of those things are open source. And so these companies are trying to find ways to, to, to get into that market. And so Google is doing it by saying, hey, developers, come get a Chromebook. It's a very inexpensive 
piece of equipment and we 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 sell it to you at, at either subsidized price or a very low cost. And look, you're going to be able to do all the same things that you would do on that silly little Linux thing that you had to install yourself, but just come do it on our platform. By the way, all these metrics and stuff will be on by default. Microsoft, same thing, right? Install Windows 10 and Windows 11, whatever the last version of Windows is going to be. And and use our platform. We'll deliver Linux. We'll deliver a class A Linux experience. And you know what? Don't worry when something doesn't work or there's a problem, we'll take care of that for you. We'll just push it down as an update and Linux will just, we can do Linux. We can deliver that as a box inside of Windows, right? And I think what fundamentally is breaking down and what people don't realize is they're selling the freedom and autonomy that comes with using a free and open source software in exchange for the perceived security that you get from a major national brand. That's where I think there's, that's where I think there's a a, a slight word of caution. That's where it's time to take a slight step back and say, is this really what we want to do? That's not to say that if you work in an all windows environment, you shouldn't take advantage of WSL and the things that it offers because you absolutely should. And that's not to say if you're an educator and you're sitting there going, I don't know how I'm going to communicate to my students who otherwise wouldn't be able to participate in our lectures because they wouldn't have the technology to do it. And our school doesn't have the budget to buy laptops for everyone, even if we did use open source Linux software on it. And so the fact that Google is giving us those computers or at a highly reduced rate is a huge blessing to us in our school. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying you should understand that the mousetrap only works because the mouse doesn't understand why the cheese is free. That's what I'm trying to say. Whoa, that's a really, that's a really good one there. Um, So it, it's very interesting to me because they're taking, in, in, in the pre-show, we kind of talked about this. You made a really good point, Noah, about the fact that in some ways they're taking the best parts of Linux, right? Because Linux has become mainstream now. Like you said, I wear my hat out in the public. I used to wear Linux practically walking billboard for Linux all the time and nobody would say anything. Now I wear it and people are like, yeah, Linux. I'm like, whoa, people know Linux everywhere now. It's become very mainstream, which is awesome in some ways. I guess a part of that success though is now Microsoft and Google and others are capitalizing on that, but they're not fixing the underlining underlining issues that made people like us go to Linux to begin with, the privacy, the security applications. Um, that were a big driver for a lot of us to go into Linux. And frankly, some of the superior software options that are available. Um, And you could say the same on the proprietary platform as well. They have some superior options there, but there's some superior options that are purely open source that run on Linux by far. And that's why devs want, obviously, to have some access to Linux, but they're not fixing it. The new Windows is going to come out. Do we suspect that suddenly privacy is going to be the huge focus and we're going to have this ultra-private Windows 11 or whatever they're going to call it come out? I, I don't think so. I think they're just like Noah's saying, taking a part of Linux saying, yeah, that super secure, really private thing, you can now run it in WSL or you can run it into a Chromebook, but you're not actually getting any of the fundamental foundational Mm -hmm. advantages that Linux provides. And it's kind of been my rant over Android, right? That a lot of people in the Linux community use Android like Android. and, and, And I'm like, because it's Linux and that's the big thing. But to me, it has none of the fundamentals I'm talking about base Android here. That is what we look for in Linux. It doesn't have the privacy. It doesn't have the security. It's not anything like what we expect on our desktop Linux. The things that we would draw a line in the sands. Don't you dare release a distro and have a bunch of metadata grabbing stuff built into it because we will get our pitchforks and our torches and we will march right to your house and say no. But with an Android, it's okay somehow. We accept it. So I, I guess I'll leave that as a question to you, Michael. What do you think about this whole 
shift here in mentality? Is this ultimately good? There's nothing we can do about it. We can't whine and complain and stomp our feet and it's going to go away. But mm. is this kind of the free cheese that the mouse don't understand, as Noah said? That's an interesting mm-hmm. phrase, if for sure. And I, I think that there is uh, some some issues with, I mean, I agree with your point about Android. As someone who is using Android, I don't like that I'm using Android. I, I really want WebOS to come back. Anyway, uh, there's there's certain aspects of this that have always unbothered me. And when they announced WSL and they announced that Microsoft hearts Linux and all that other stuff, I, I always looked at it as like, this is just ridiculous nonsense that they're trying to use this as a marketing play to get more people using it. The problem that I have with this overall is not necessarily that that Microsoft is doing it. I, it makes business sense. You know, it makes sense that they would do it because they want to have people not leave their platform, but they are not looking at, they're not getting the value that these this software provides. They're not getting the full uh, privacy security value that Linux provides and that sort of stuff. But they don't, you know, Microsoft doesn't care about that. And they just want to make sure people don't leave because, you know, my, my Windows is not a platform that anyone is a fan of. People use it because they're expected to use it, not because they're like, oh, yay, Windows. It's more of you like... You don't see people walking around with Windows 10 hats. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah. exactly. it's not going to happen. Even the people who are on podcasts and shows about Windows are not fan of Windows and will tell you that. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting, like, dichotomy there because uh, they have... Uh, they have such a huge market, but no one likes it. Whereas Linux is, is, is beloved because it offers so much to you and you have the customization options, you have the security value, the privacy value, all these things. And people are, it, there's an argument that are, there, people are learning more and more about this because WSL is technically promoting Linux as a term. So people are learning about what it is more. And because of what Noah said about how open source is kind of taken over in the business world as well, I mean, it's it's still, you know, somewhat people are standoffish a bit, but it's becoming more and more every day a, a powerful term and powerful technology. But there's also people who are taking the open source part and changing what it means and doing things like open washing, as it's called, where they say that they're open source, but not understand at all what that means and actually just not do anything that makes no it open the president source. said we need more open source everybody understands it now so we're good <laughs> hopefully that does make yes. something move the needle sure yeah. but i think it's interesting because my problem with it is more of the sense that i don't trust microsoft and i and i know that they have changed but the amount that they have changed is not remotely enough to me they've changed a little bit sure but mm. also not really because it's like they every time someone says like they you know they they're no longer the same company it's like yeah they're not they're not incredibly awful they're just awful now <laughs> you know they haven't fixed some of the underlying issues that we all have problems with which i thought noah said brilliantly jill mm-hmm. give us our final thoughts on this yeah it, it it's this weird 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 thing you know it's it's nice that linux is becoming more used and, uh, you know, even if it is on a Windows desktop, but yeah, at the cost of security that that it is it is hard to take. But the one uh, one of the good things actually in regards actually to Chrome OS is, yeah, yes. Now you can install uh, Linux apps in in Chrome OS on your Chromebook, which is cool. But even better with uh, Christini. The, the distro actually exists alongside Chrome OS. 
So Google doesn't know what's going inside, you know, that container. So, cause it is a, a, a completely uh, separate. Uh, is that going to hold true though? Because I know Christini is now allowing you to share files and things back and forth between the virtual machine and Chrome OS. So at, yeah. are they opening enough doors that that not sharing info is going to go away? Well, that, that is, uh, they've had that since the start. I mean, I put Christini on my very first Samsung Chromebook, you know, the very first one launched actually. And uh, you could always access your files, you know, from the computer or, or, you know, Google Cloud. But that was as far as, as it would infiltrate. They may have made changes to this new version that I don't know about, but that's as far as it would go. You know, the, the beauty of, Installing Chrome OS Christini is it, it it's actually more steps and more complicated to install than a standard Ubuntu, and users have you know have to put a bit more tech have to be a bit more tech savvy and curious. You have to put the Chromebook in developer mode. You know, there's lots of extra steps you have to go through, and it's actually harder to, than installing in a regular Ubuntu. So if a lot of users do that. You know, the Linux uh, uh, Penguin foot is only a step away of a standalone on a computer. So, and, that, and that's only that if is, they um, continue to understand that what they're using underlying is correct. Linux and that they could have that full experience they're having if they were to boot into Linux and maybe it gets there. I think this is fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting to see that in one way, I feel like we won a battle, right? All of the main mm -hmm. operating systems essentially have had to admit Linux is dominated. We need to create a way to interface with Linux. At the same time, the way they're doing it, it makes Linux more like a tool by itself yeah. within the operating system than its own standalone entity. Yeah, they found a, a way to make money off a free operating system. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's an interesting world, but I suspect we're going to see which, far more I, I, of this. Which I, I want to jump in, you know, which wouldn't be bad if they wanted <laughs> to bring some value to it, right? Like if yeah. Microsoft came out tomorrow, and said, here's what we're going to do. New plan for Win Windows 11. Here's what it's going to be. The NT kernel, it's 30 years old. We're sick of it. And frankly, nobody's, you know, people aren't writing apps for that anymore. They're <laughs> writing web-based apps. And so the future is open source and we love Linux. Here's what we're going to do. Windows 11, it's going to be a Debian base or an Ubuntu base. And we're going to put the arrow UI over it. And so everybody that's comfortable with Windows and has a start menu and all the things, keep all that there. Uh, and instead, we're just going to move over to snap packages and anything that that is released or, or flat packs, whatever. But, you know, we're going to have a, a, a Linux base and we're going to have some sort of universal packaging system on top. And that's how we're going to ship apps. And then we're going to take all of our developers that that were writing crappy, crufty mm -hmm. NT code. And we're going to have them start working to port stuff over. Because guess what? Apple is moving uh, to their M1 architecture, which means they're pushing a all-in-one package. And so the next time Adobe goes to redo Photoshop and and light, whatever else, all of those companies are eventually going to start targeting M1 if they want to exist on Apple's infrastructure. So mm -hmm. this, it could be Microsoft's opportunity to say, you know what, mm. we're going to take this existing, established, very valuable uh, infrastructure, software infrastructure, and instead we're going to add value to it by promoting it and branding it and selling it and selling support around it. And so the end result is you can go to Best Buy or Walmart or whatever and buy a laptop that has 
basically Debian in it and you can install all your packages and do all the things. And then Microsoft can actually go out into the open source world and say, mm -hmm. hey, exactly what Canonical is doing. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, could you please port this to our platform? Because we would like to have it. Microsoft did that. There'd be plenty of people like myself and I'm sure the rest of us in Destination mm -hmm. Links be looking and saying, hey, thanks, Microsoft, for going out and using your, your, your weight to go push people and move people towards a direction that benefits everyone. Because at the end of the day, if you didn't like Windows 11, if they weren't bringing enough value to it, to it, then you would just dump that and go to Debian proper and you'd still have all, you could still take advantage of everything that Microsoft did, but that's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're trying to take a successful, useful software implementation here and try to stick it under their own umbrella. And that's, we should call it what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's well said. And also just to mm -hmm. wrap it up here, I think someone had a great comment in our chat uh, mentioning about instead of the cheese to in the mousetrap, that peanut butter is probably better and just works a little bit better. So <laughs> peanut butter <laughs> and chocolate. We have a professional mousetrapper in our, in our comments. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> this episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager that is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. Well, how does it do that? Well, you want to have a different password for every account on every website. This is very important because if you ever, if there's ever a leak or if there's a website called Have I Been Pwned where you can check to see if your email is associated to different leaks and stuff like that, and it could tell you. And if you use that password repeatedly across different sites, then one of those being attacked is just going to set up all sorts of you know avalanches of problems. So you want to have a separate one for each one. And that does sound like a great policy, but it also sounds like a lot of work. Well, that's where Bitwarden comes in because Bitwarden is a password manager that allows you to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, also automatically generate those passwords for you, and also pass phrases if you want to use those. And you can fill those passwords in automatically in login forms so you don't have to do any of that stuff manually. And you can access all of this stuff across multiple different types of devices like your web browser, your mobile apps, desktop applications, command line, all that stuff is available. And in addition to that, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption on your local devices before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only person with access to that data. And you can get started by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN and you can get started for free, but I think you want to check out their premium accounts because it starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right. Just $10 per year gets you access to one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your account at Bitwarden. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about some news, and that is related to my favorite web browser, Firefox. So Firefox 89 has been released, and this is a big update. Firefox 89 adds more improvements to the privacy, privacy features and like the previous versions had, like the smart block feature that was introduced in 87, which is enabling uh, better support and seamless experience through like when you have blocking of trackers activated and also a total cookie protection feature, which was uh, created in Firefox 88, which makes it much better for uh, private browsing mode and that sort of stuff. But the, there's tons of great changes that happened in this uh, release, but the biggest one is is definitely the brand new Proton design. So it's been redesigned. The UI has been changed in a lot of ways. They have streamlined menus, updated info bars. They refined the color palettes. The brand new first run welcome page, which is really nice. And they've also made some like changes to the styling and the iconography and all sorts of stuff. 
But there's also one change that has a lot of people talking about it. It's kind of a controversial change for some people, and that's the new tab design with the floating tabs. Now, I'm curious what everybody thinks about the new design of the Proton design, whether we talk about the tabs or just in general. What I, love your thoughts? I love it. I love it. <laughs> I don't know if you like it, Noah. We need to expand on that. Do you really like it? So, I, here, here's here's a, here's a really typical conversation for me. Oh, yeah, you know, I was blah, 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 and in Chrome, you... Oh, you use Firefox, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's like this disappointment oh. that, that people have when they find like, it's like, oh, everyone, the rest of the world does this. Noah's a special right. snowflake and he uses, right? And, and at the same time, and I try and make a point to this on Ask Noah every time Firefox makes a release that, hey, I use Firefox because they are doing a better job of privacy than anyone else out there today. The second that somebody else is doing more for privacy and security and caring about the end user, then tell me who that browser is. And 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 when they're able to accomplish what Mozilla has, then then I'll switch. But for right now, even if even if Firefox is is a little bit slower, even if Firefox didn't look as nice or wasn't as organized, I'm still happy to use Firefox. Well, with the latest updates to Firefox, Firefox has become nothing short of gorgeous. So Floating tabs are absolutely fantastic. They allow you to see, I can actually read the, the titles uh, mm -hmm. inside of the tabs easier. And then my absolute favorite part is the reorganized menu. And they've gone through the hamburger menu and cleaned it up a bunch and, and got the, the things that you want to reach for first, your bookmarks, your history, your downloads, your passwords, your add-in th and themes, all of those things come up right away, uh, broken down into little sections. I they, It's a bang up job. That's That's the answer. I mean, I can't disagree with you at all as much as I want to. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's so nice. And when you talked about the text, being able to read what's on the tab, also underneath that, because it's floating, if there's a video playing or audio playing, it actually has a sentence there that you can read that says a video is playing or something along those lines there in the, in the tab. And this is actually very which helpful. One, which tab has audio playing in the exactly, background? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. In the, Middle in, of the night. And you can mute it. And you can mute it right there <laughs> yeah. very easily. And that <laughs> stuff was there. There were some, it did have some uh, in the prior versions ability to signal that audio was playing or something, but it was so difficult that if you had a bunch of tabs open, you couldn't see it. Now it's super apparent. Like I can tell exactly which tab is playing audio that I didn't want it to be playing at that time or I want to pause it or stop it or things like that. Uh, you also mentioned the hamburger menu being cleaned up in the menu items. I, I love it. Everything makes sense. It's in a place that even though they changed it, I was able to still find all of the settings and things that were important to me very easily. So it wasn't changed in such a way that I was completely shocked when I went in. I will say that the new look took me a few moments to be like, do I like this? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I booted into a machine I hadn't updated and saw the original Firefox, which was the important comparison. I'm like, ew gross. Now, I never really noticed it was gross before, but when they changed it, <laughs> it looks gross now in comparison. Like the new one's so much better. It's such a superior look to me in this. But Michael and Jill, you're more designer focused. So I guess we'll start with you, Michael. Did you like the changes? Well, I, do, I, do, I, I did do some stuff where I was kind of comparing the difference between the, the pixel changes because people were complaining about it was taking up more space. And I just I was curious. <laughs> so I, I counted the pixels. How many is different from the first interface to, the, to this new Proton interface? And it's like, it is bigger. It's like 23 pixels more. But it's also giving you a lot more room and that sort of stuff. But what's, what's funny is I, a couple months ago, I decided to try out sidebar tabs, which is a thing that people... Uh, have been wanting me to try out for years. So I figured, okay, I'll finally do it. And then this was like probably like a month or so before I knew Proton was even a thing. So my 
version of, of Firefox doesn't even have the tab new tab bar because I, I hid the tab bar because I wanted to use the sidebar system. Mm-hmm. And it's it's funny mm-hmm. because you 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 are making me want to try the new tabs bar system because you know I want to try it out because I didn't know about the whole you know telling you I've the I've seen it and I've never thing. tried it either, Michael. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Side <laughs> the sidebar is nice. I do like it, but it's also there are some issues with it. There are some things that I do find a little bit annoying about it. But overall, I do think it's cool. So I tried it out, and then now you're making me want to go back to the tab bar because of the new Proton design. <laughs> so that's a bit that's interesting. I don't. I think that people are annoyed by change, and I I think that yeah. this design is not a really huge problem, and that in you can get used to it, just like the same way that people were really mad at Firefox four for coming out and changing the UI or 57 when they changed this other stuff. Like they're not changing anything so drastically. I miss it when Firefox anything. is in a terminal. That's when Firefox is good. <laughs> I miss, I, I can't believe they changed the name from Firebird to Firefox. I'm disappointed. Yeah. What do you think, Jill? Did you like it? Oh, I absolutely love it. Just like, like you and Noah and Michael, um, I actually moved into the new modern look and feel, you know, really actually really quickly and easily. And I absolutely freaking love the new themes. <laughs> and uh, one <laughs> yes, of the defaults the one is the, yeah, the Firefox um, Alpenglow with uh, it's, it's got purple, pink and orange gradients. And I just love that. And I'm glad they made that a default one. And I like Noah love the floating tabs. Ever since I tested out the Firefox Proton preview released in February, I have liked them because you can see them better, like yes. <laughs> Noah was saying. It's just visually less cluttered. You know, they've, they've done so many improvements. And I actually like the sidebar, too, because I use the sidebar uh, constantly, honestly, in Vivaldi and Opera. That's one of the features of those, mm-hmm. of, uh, those browsers that I like. I use the sidebar for all the time. So, uh uh, transitioning to that in Firefox is has been easy, and they also one of the other big s- security improvements is media autoplay is dis- disabled by default now. Yes, yes. Yay. That is awesome. <laughs> that, that's just so Such nice. Such a nice thing. Oh, especially like when when we're broadcasting, you know, and then you, then you go to a site and something starts auto playing, you know, when you need to yeah. look at show notes and and look at websites. <laughs> or I need to load the preview of the stream, but I don't need the stream yeah. being played back to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a very powerful feature. And what I look to Firefox, the reason why, and I, I went through a period. Michael knows he goes through these things with me, where I switch to Brave and I try some other things. But at the end of the day, I always come back to Firefox. When they focus, when that when Mozilla focuses on the things and the reasons why I choose Firefox, when they focus on the privacy, when they focus on the security, that's the most important to me when I hear those announcements. Mm-hmm. And I think, like Noah said, when you look at the bigger picture, are there flaws with Mozilla? Sure. Could you point something out they did that was stupid? Sure. But when you look at the bigger picture of everything they've done and the fight that they're doing of being one of the few mainstream browsers, not on the Chrome Chromium engine, you look at it and you go, this is a good company that overall has done so much good, right? For privacy and security. Mm-hmm. And while this isn't something as, as everybody makes fun of me for leaving everything default that I personally look for, like <laughs> I need Mozilla to have a new look. I'm more focused on give me more security, more privacy options and less things turned on by default. I didn't realize it until I saw the differences that this UI overhaul will make a lot more people look at Firefox for the first time, open it and go, wow, this is modern. This is new. This is fresh. 
And so it is more important than I originally thought and really glad they made this change. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, as a designer, I do think that it is, uh, it does look quite good. Like the, the floating tab thing, it, it is off-putting, but it, it's not problematic to me because I, I, tr I tried it out uh, in the preview during February when we talked about it previously and I did try it out and it, it did look good. Like it looked very good, but the, the other stylizing that they did and the improvements and the mm -hmm. just the consistency that they improved the the rest of the browser is even if i didn't like the floating tabs i would much You'd get over prefer it. it overall the whole thing because it's so much better in every other aspect but i also don't have a problem with the floating tabs what originally it made me think well that's not tabs anymore because the word tab implies that it's sitting on top of the thing but i don't care uh, floating tabs buttons who cares <laughs> there you go so check out the new firefox i think it's quite awesome i think you'll like the new look of it getting into our gaming i am so excited about this game i found this looking at what people were playing under steam so i went under steam i chose linux and i, I looked at what are people playing to look for a game to highlight and what i came across was a game called war thunder war thunder is a comprehensive free-to-play cross-platform mmo military game dedicated to aviation, armored vehicles, and naval craft from the early 20th century to the most modern combat units. They say to join now and take part in major battles on land, in the air, at sea. It has 200,000 very positive reviews in this game. Mm. You can play this on Linux because they have a port for Linux. But the great thing is if you have that person that's a friend and you haven't quite converted them to Linux yet, uh, and they're still on Windows, or maybe they only can play games on PlayStation because the computer is not powerful enough, or Xbox, or whatever they have, because it's cross-platform, you can still play with them. So if you're on a Linux box, they're on PlayStation, you can still join a game and play. It reminded me very much of World of Warships and that style of game, except it incorporates all of the tanks and warships and everything else into separate modules. So you can just do the warship portion or you can go do the tank portion, but it's all built into one game instead of being kind of separate games that you would have to uh, download and install. And why this meant so much to me is because I know a lot of people in Linux like to play World of Warships, mm -hmm. but that game is not, depending on the version, it broke a lot in the few weeks that I was playing it. Like one week it would work in Linux, the next week it wouldn't work in Linux and it have all these issues. But this is a native port here into Linux. And it ran gorgeously on my machine. And when I was doing the naval warfare specifically to kind of mimic that world of warships, which I played for a few weeks, it was very similar, right? The cannons, the aiming, the strategy and the land, the graphics were beautiful. I loved everything about this. Jill, you've played this before. Yeah. Speak to me about <laughs> War Thunder because it just came on my radar. Yeah. So something that's really cool is they added uh, sweet, some unique Swedish tanks and French tanks. And uh, uh, I know my husband would get very addictive to this game because he yeah. builds models of these tanks. Makes sense. <laughs> so, but I had had fun driving a tank around uh, just in single player mode. And it is absolutely beautiful. I've been wanting to play it multiplayer and haven't. So that would be fun for the, the four of us to play well, we'll together. Well, no one Jill's in the game. She'll have a pink tank and it only shoots flowers and compliments <laughs> yeah. at people. It doesn't yeah. actually hurt anybody. But yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So I think we should do uh, in the next DL Game Fest, this should be one of the games we play Definitely. because Absolutely. I think <laughs> Naval Warfare against Noah would be pretty awesome. I want to oh, see yes. 
how strategic he can be here in some some battle. I'll no scope you one v one in a battleship. Yeah, I like it. Well, can you not shoot people in this game? Yeah, you can totally. Okay, it's good, all great. about shooting I'm in. people. In fact, <laughs> all right, I'm in. I'm in. The the software spot like this week is something that's really cool. It's an open source app that allows you to remove unnecessary files on your computer. You can talk about like a system cleaner kind of thing. And what's really cool about it is that it allows you to do more than just like deduplication and all sorts of stuff. It has the application I'm going to probably butcher this. Sorry. It's spelled C-Z-K-A-W-K-A or Chikafka. Yeah, you're that's how you to... pronounce it. Right. <laughs> sure. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> so Chikafka is written in, <laughs> it's written in Rust and it's a very fast application and it has a plethora of features. So uh, this, it was actually I was looking for a deduplicator when I found it and it has uh, it has that but it also has to be able to find empty folders, uh, big files, empty files, temporary files that are left over. Uh, you, you can actually compare images that are similar. Uh, you can do uh, zero files. So if a file existed, but then it had was like it was corrupted or something, you could find something like you could find those files. You can actually find uh, music files that are similar to other things, so based on the file name or based on the content of the hash and that sort of stuff. Tons nice. of different features, even uh, broken files that are had like invalid extensions or sorts, all sorts of stuff. It is a very, very interesting application. And you might have heard of something like FSLint. This has been around for a very long time because this is not the first ever duplicator or whatever. But uh, what's interesting is that this is kind of tailored to the the style of FSLint in terms of like the workflow. And then I went to, you know, look at like, you know, how it compares at the very top of the FSLint website. It says you should check out uh, uh, Kafka. <laughs> That's it. You should check out Chikafka. It's a new modern version and stuff. So it's like even FSLint thinks you should try it out. So this is a really interesting. It has GUI and command line tools and all that sort of stuff. And if you'd like to check out this week's Software Spotlight, then you can find links in the show notes. Our tip of the week this this week is the command ls now maybe you've gone into the terminal and said to yourself i want to see what files are here and you've typed ls and you see the files maybe you started by typing dir and figured out that you have to do ls now thanks to microsoft loving linux you can do ls everywhere and it works but did you know that there are a number of different switches and options that you can use to bring out more power in ls so for example if you wanted to see all of the files that are inside of a directory, including hidden files, you could do TAC A. So you would do LS space and then a dash A, and that would show you all of the files. You could do LS TAC, is it, I, no, I gotta do it live. Is it TAC AL? Yeah, TAC AL will give you all of the details of those files, or you could do uh, just LS TAC L. You can combine those uh, those operators to, to do more than one thing at one time. You can list directories, not uh, their content by using ls-tac-d. You can sort by file sizes using ls-tac-s. Or you can list out by filtering with comma-separated entries for export or easier analysis using ls-tac-m. I'll also take a moment to point out that by using a vertical bar, you can also pipe input to other commands. So for example, you might do ls-tac-al and then pipe to grep to look for a specific file. So maybe if you have hundreds of thousands of files inside of a directory, and you may be looking for files that maybe start with a, a given character set, end with a given character set, or match a specific character set uh, in its entirety. You can do that with by combining that with the grep command. If you'd like to learn more, uh, we invite you to check out our past weeks of tips and tricks. And of course, come back next week for more tips and tricks in the tips and tricks section on Destination Linux. A huge thank you to each and every one of you by supporting us, watching, listening, however you do it. We love your faces. 
And if you want more DL, well, you can become a patron like all these beautiful people in our behind the scenes. You can't see this if you're on YouTube and Twitch, but there's a behind the scenes chat going on with our patrons. And we also have a patron only after show. They are in a, I hear it's now 200,000 square foot virtual stadium in which <laughs> they get to hang out with us. Yeah, absolutely. We're, no, we're going to give Noah a corner office eventually, like 50 square foot. But this 200,000 <laughs> square foot virtual stadium is amazing. And you can only take part of it if you're a patron. So you get VIP access to the show, live recordings. You get a patron only after show. You come hang out with us and talk with the crew. In addition, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're now live at dealinlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. Hey, we can't wait to see you in the chat. And also, you can go right now to dealinstore.com where you can find all sorts of stuff. We have T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, aprons, uh, backpacks, all kinds of stuff in the dealinstore.com. And there's there's so many <laughs> there's uh, beanies in in fact also uh, that's what Jill is showing off on the video version. We have so much great stuff. Go to dealingstore.com and check out all the great merch and swag you can get. And we have so many amazing shows here on the Destination Linux Network. We have the Pseudo Show, the Ask Noah Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel. Yay! There goes Ryan dabbing. Deal and extend. Hardware addicts. Game Sphere. And get your Fedora hat on with our latest show, the Fedora Podcast. So go to DestinationLinux.network and subscribe to all these shows to keep those penguins marching in the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Bye-bye. There it is. Bye-bye. There we go. Yeah. yeah, yeah I yeah. like Noah's Jill sleep. added that one. <laughs> we did it. Yay. Yay. Oh, my God. It worked. It I was worked. Like, I don't know if Michael captured any of it, but I captured all of it. All of it. All yeah. of Did you? Did you though, Michael? Did you? Thankfully, there's. That's what backups are for. So I have other recordings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I did. Uh, Thankfully. <laughs> uh, all right, patrons, turn on your cameras. Turn on your chat. Come hang out with us, man.